Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, an infectious disease epidemiologist explains how a new study of households with COVID-19 will help us learn more about how the novel coronavirus spreads. We haven't yet been able to define, for example, how many people have no symptoms at all when they get COVID. And this study will help us look at that. So if you have a COVID infected person in a home, what percent of people are infected? What percent of them show symptoms? And what percent of them would we never have picked up if we had not been doing this study? And a nurse practitioner shares her experience providing care during the pandemic as a colonel in the Army Reserve. Honestly, I thought it was an amazing chance to be able to help in a situation where you're watching a city within our state just suffering. All that, plus a visit from the Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll hear from an Army Reserve Colonel who works as a nurse practitioner and was activated to help care for COVID-19 patients downstate. But first, a new study is underway that looks at the household contacts of people who've become infected with the coronavirus, and we'll talk with an infectious disease epidemiologist from Upstate about what we can expect to learn. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The COVID-19 pandemic has been underway for about six months, and today I'll speak about what we've learned and what we still need to learn with Dr. Katie Anderson. She's an assistant professor of medicine and an infectious disease epidemiologist at Upstate. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Anderson. Thanks for having me, Amber. Now, I understand you're involved in a new study that looks at family members of those who have COVID-19. Please tell us about it. Yeah, we have just begun enrolling for a new study where we'll be studying how COVID spreads within households. And for this study, which will take place over the next three to four months, we'll be enrolling about 600 households. Half of those will have someone who's just tested positive for COVID, and half of those will have someone who has just tested negative for COVID. And then we'll be enrolling that person as well as everyone else in their, in their household, whether or not they've been tested for COVID, whether or not they tested positive or negative. And then we'll be looking to see what their symptoms are, who becomes infected, and collecting some specimens and data over the next three to four months. So these are people from Central New York. Obviously, they were patients at Upstate at some point, right? They're people who were tested for COVID in the upstate system, and it could have been in an outpatient clinic, it could have been in an emergency department, or they could have been patients in the hospital. Now, do you want people who are interested in participating to contact you, or do you have a, a way of contacting the people that you want to include? We will be contacting them. So we will be looking at who has been tested in our system and reaching out to them and their families. And, and you mentioned some testing. Is there blood work? Um, what other testing might be involved? Yeah, I'd say not surprisingly, this has been one of the most challenging logistics of doing a community-based study in the middle of a pandemic. So we'll be doing as much of the interaction as we can with these households remotely. So we'll be collecting data from them by the phone. We'll be enrolling them by the phone. 95% of our interactions will be taking place by phone, but there's a few things that are unavoidable and need to take place in person. So one of them is collecting blood. We'll be collecting blood from people when they're enrolled, and that will be to look for whether or not they have any signs that they've been exposed to COVID in the past. And we'll be collecting blood at different time points going forward about every month. And then a unique part of this study and really what makes it feasible is that we'll be looking for evidence of COVID infection using saliva. And that's using a swab that people can collect within their homes. It's a very high throughput or very fast test. And it was developed by Frank Middleton, who's a researcher at Upstate. And so that's really what makes this study possible is that we're able to test a lot of people for COVID infection and they're able to swab themselves in their own home. So these household contacts, uh, if, if someone in the household is test positive, there's a pretty good chance that the people they live with will get it from them? Is I mean, is that kind of what you're looking at? Yeah. Um, so our group at Upstate, and I'm working with other researchers um, who I've worked with in the past to do these kinds of household studies for other viruses. And we suspect that COVID is 
similar to these other, other viruses that we've studied, and that we think that people who are unfortunately at the highest risk to become infected are going to be those household contacts. Because we all think about how we've been living in our bubble for the last four months. We've been social distancing, but within our homes reasonably, we have not been social distancing. We're hugging our children, we're eating meals, we're all mixing together because that is just how life needs to be. So unfortunately, we expect that those people will be at highest risk of infection. And that's the reason we designed the study this way, is if we really want to study the risks of COVID infection, we really want to understand the symptoms, we need to find people who have COVID. And unfortunately, these households will probably be the highest yield place to go. But we don't fully understand, we don't fully know yet what to expect in terms of what percent of people will be infected. We haven't yet, and this has been in the news a lot, been able to define, for example, how many people have no symptoms at all when they get COVID. And this study will help us look at that. So if you have a COVID infected person in a home, what percent of people are infected? What percent of them show symptoms? And what percent of them would we never have picked up if we had not been doing this study? Interesting. Well, let's talk because a lot of things have been learned in six months and there's a lot to still learn. But are we still pretty confident that the symptoms for most people include fever, cough, uh, shortness of breath? Or are there other things that we're aware of now? So we still believe that the symptoms of the main symptoms of COVID are the same ones we've been thinking of over the last several months. Most people will get some shortness of breath. A lot of people will have cough. A lot of people will have fever. But there's other symptoms, and we'll be looking at these in this study, that are very mild and may otherwise be missed. So, for example, loss of your ability to smell or, or loss of your ability to taste anything. And we've already realized in discussions with some people that once they get their test, they say, oh, actually, I wouldn't have thought of this, but I have been experiencing this. And so the real advantage of this kind of study is that we're going to be getting people who are completely asymptomatic, which means that they have no symptoms at all ever with COVID. And by following them over a long period, we're able to say that. We're also able to find the people who are pre-symptomatic, which means that they don't have symptoms to begin with, and then they develop them at some point. And we're able to get these people where they say, oh, well, I wouldn't have seen my doctor for this, but now that you're asking me about it, I have had a little bit of loss of my sense of smell or a little bit of diarrhea or something else I wouldn't have otherwise told you. Interesting. So we are still concerned that people might be asymptomatic, but spreading this to other people. That's still a concern, right? It's absolutely a concern. And we don't know yet, one, how infectious these people might be. It could be that the people who are very sick have more virus, and so they're more likely to spread. But the people who have symptoms, if they're following recommendations, should also be taking precautions and isolating themselves and trying to minimize spread. So it's possible that these people who have no symptoms at all but are infected could actually be very important in the transmission in homes because they presumably are not changing their behavior. So now that there's more testing in the community available, if someone feels like they were exposed to the virus, they get tested the next day and the test result comes back negative, are we confident that that person was not infected or are they still do they still sort of need to be aware and isolate for two weeks? There's a couple different questions in there and really good questions. Um, one is about how reliable testing is. Um, and there are limitations in how tests can be interpreted always with every single disease, with every single virus, not just COVID. With COVID, so say you were exposed to someone in your household and you went in to get tested. You may test negative just because it's too soon. It takes a while for the virus to become apparent in your body. You know, usually we think on average four to five days, it could be longer. So it could be that you just tested too early. It could also be that with all tests for every virus, we know that they are not perfect. So sometimes you test negative, even though you actually have it. And that's just an unavoidable feature of all diagnostic tests. So there's uncertainty around those things, which is why, um, this gets more into you know, the county health department, public health. They still recommend that people who have tested negative but have been exposed do quarantine themselves for some period. And that's because of this uncertainty and the higher likelihood that they would have been infected living in the same household as someone who has COVID. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with an infectious disease epidemiologist, Dr. Katie Anderson. Let me ask you in terms of transmission, um, is this virus spread through 
droplets in the air or through surface contact? That's something that's been evolving um, over the last few months in terms of our understanding the spread of COVID. We had initially thought that surfaces and people touching surfaces was possibly a very important means of transmission. We still think it plays a role. So you should still be washing your hands a lot. You should still be wiping down surfaces that are high contact like doorknobs and things like that or disinfecting them. We think that the, the droplet transmission is most likely the most important means of transmission right now for COVID. And that's supported by a couple things. One is that when we look at the transmission patterns in our area, um, the rate of rise of new cases, for example, when it first started to emerge at the end of March in Onondaga County, we can see a decrease in the transmission rate as people started to stay home. And we can see a decrease in transmission rate as people started to wear masks. So most clinicians, public health people are very unified in believing that masks have played a really important role in slowing the spread, which would go back to supporting the droplet transmission. Someone coughing, someone talking near you is really important for spread. Wow. Well, let me ask you, because you brought up about the masks, um, and there seems to be, you know, a, a, some people believe that they don't need to wear a mask, but is it, do we know for sure that it um, is having an impact? So masks, um, do protect the wearer to some degree. So if you wear a mask when you go out to the store, we think that gives you a little bit of protection, but what it's really doing is protecting the people that you come into contact with from you. And I think that's really important because many people, maybe most people, we don't know yet with COVID may have no symptoms at all. So in terms of, or, or may be about to develop symptoms, but be in this pre-symptomatic phase where they can still be infectious. So it's really important the ultimate public health good that you can be doing to wear a mask. Um, and we believe looking at the data again in terms of transmission and how our, our area has been very successful in slowing the spread, that masks have played a huge role in that. How long do you think we'll be wearing masks? Is this something when the kids go back to school, if they go back to school, they'll be in masks? I'll start by saying that one thing that's certain is that we will continue to be at risk for COVID until we have herd immunity. That's the only certainty we have right now. And the herd immunity could come through vaccination or it could come through enough people becoming infected in our community that it stops the spread. We don't know how long that'll take. Currently, we think that in our area, maybe about 5%, certainly I would say no more than 10% of us have been infected, which means we still have a long way to go. So I think that masks should continue to be an important part of our daily lives going forward until we're done dealing with COVID-19. Well, let me ask but that's, you, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. L let me ask you about quarantine fatigue. Um, the weather's nice. People are tired of staying home. Are you afraid that central New York will see case numbers and deaths rise if we start going back to life before COVID-19? I'm, I'm very concerned about that. Um, it's been a long four months that we've been dealing with COVID in our area. And I think our community has shown that they have been very diligent by and large in trying to slow the spread and we've been effective at it. Um, but the reason we've been so effective in slowing the spread is these simple measures we were just talking about, wearing masks, social distancing, washing your hands, Nothing has changed about the virus, and with so many of us not yet having been exposed, very little has changed with us. And so if we stop doing those measures, there's every reason to think that we could see an increase in cases. I do think another thing that could be happening this summer, which is to our advantage, is that as people are starting to mix a little bit more, maybe getting together with friends in the backyard that you haven't seen in a couple of months and have a socially distant cookout or something like that, um, that these interactions outdoors may be slightly lower risk because of airflow and ventilation and things like that. That might also be helping our community. But otherwise, if we all started to mix, get together in bars and restaurants, you know, kind of throw caution to the wind, we have every reason to think we could see an increase in cases again. Are we better able to predict which people who get COVID are going to be able to recover and which people are liable to end up in an intensive care unit? Some things have been somewhat 
constant, and I say unchanged since the beginning of the epidemic. So we know that unfortunately people who are elderly, people who have underlying lung disease, people who take medications that suppress their immune systems are higher risk for COVID. Uh, and that seemed logical from the beginning of the pandemic and that still seems to hold true now. There's a lot that we still don't understand. So we can all remember a few months ago when we were saying that young adults, healthy young adults should have nothing to worry about with COVID. Children should have nothing to worry about with COVID. And now unfortunately we've seen some rare instances of very severe disease in young children. And we've also seen young adults who do very poorly and we would never have predicted that they would have such a, a severe course with COVID. So we really still have a lot to learn. So it's not just, uh, you know, older people with underlying health conditions. Uh, I know we, we've talked on HealthLink on air with some other experts about multi-system inflammatory disease in children. That's still a concern too, right? It's still a concern. Thankfully, those, those outcomes are um, a little bit more rare. It still tends to be the elderly and the people with lung disease and poor immune systems. But we still are seeing, as we see more cases, we start to see these more rare outcomes of some younger people and healthy people who do quite poorly with COVID. Now, some people that get this disease tend to recover, you know, quickly. And then I've read about others that struggle with symptoms, not in the hospital necessarily, but they're struggling with symptoms at home for, for months. So it seems like a very different disease course for different people. Do we know what to attribute that to? Not yet, and that's something we hope to study in this community-based household study as well. Um, we don't understand this phenomenon of people who test positive for three months, for example, or people who feel better and then they feel worse again and they go from positive to negative to positive. Is this reinfection? Is it that the test wasn't 100% accurate? Is it that the virus never really went away? We don't understand which patients are more likely to have this kind of prolonged course, and we don't fully understand how to interpret it yet. But in this study, we'll be taking samples of blood and we'll be following these folks with frequent follow-up for the next three to four months, and we'll hope to start to address some of those questions. Now, something else I've read about is that minority populations seem to be disproportionately affected by COVID-19, that death rates in the Black population are a lot higher than other uh, races. Have you looked into that? Do you know what to attribute that to? And is that true? Is that the, is that the case? I'd say so far it's somewhat anecdotal in our area to say that that's the case, but it's something we're certainly concerned about. And it's certainly been a trend throughout the country that minority populations in certain communities are more likely one to get infected and more likely two to have a severe disease or a fatal outcome if they're infected. We're hoping to look at that in this study as well. We plan to disproportionately enroll or enroll a higher number of people who are African-American, for example, and try to really get at, is this some kind of biological difference in terms of the response to the virus or are there other factors going on in terms of access to care and other, other possible differences? HealthLink on Air will be right back with more from Dr. Katie Anderson. Thanks for listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Katie Anderson. She's an infectious disease epidemiologist, and we're talking about the COVID-19 pandemic. Do you think it's possible that large numbers of people contracted COVID and recovered without even realizing they were sick? If it's like most viruses, I would think yes. Um, we don't know yet what that percent might be. Um, this gets back again to that how many people are asymptomatic, which has been kind of kicked around in the media and in publications, and we still don't have a really clear answer. Um, in this study, so we'll be getting specimens from everyone in the household, whether or not they get symptoms, um, and trying to look at who has evidence that they've been exposed and should help address that question. So is antibody testing part of your study? Yes, right. And we'll be doing it at different time points. So as I mentioned, we'll be enrolling people who have 
an active COVID case that we find in the upstate system following their family members. And we anticipate that for those families over a short period of time, they'll be very informative and interesting to follow because they have a case in their home. But we're also enrolling people who have had no sign of COVID infection yet and then drawing their blood at regular intervals. And we think that that will give a better idea in terms of the general population of the proportion of people who've been exposed. So can we talk a little bit about what antibodies are? It, the body the body creates them, right? If it's exposed yeah. to a virus? That's right. So when you're exposed to a virus um, or a bacteria, um, your body will try to mount a defense response. It tries to fight the virus in this case, or COVID-19. And those, those antibodies stick around. That's the basis of vaccination. So you expose someone to something, your body fights it, and then it sticks around in your system so that if it sees it again, it can fight it again. With COVID, we know that we can look at antibodies just like with any other virus and try to see if, it's, uh, if someone has been exposed. And we think that at least in the short term, so if we check within a month or two, that it should be pretty reliable in terms of picking up infection. And it probably, should relate to protection, that at least in the short term, we think that most people would probably be protected from COVID. But if we think about things like flu, we know that just having antibodies doesn't mean that you're protected the next year or the year after that, that you can become infected again. So as part of this study, we'll be using antibodies to try to look at who's been infected and exposed, but then we'll also be following the antibodies over time to try to get a sense of how long do they stick around for do they drop quickly over time and try to get some insight or try to um, understand better what protection means with COVID? If I have antibodies for one virus, would those antibodies go after a different vi virus such as COVID? Or are they Sometimes. specific to certain viruses? Yeah, they work best when they're specific. Um, which is why for flu, for example, they have three different types of flu virus every year, now four actually in the, in the vaccine you get every year for influenza. And that's because they do cross react a bit, but the antibodies work best when they're very specific to the virus you were infected with. But that's one interesting question with COVID that we also don't fully understand well, is that before um, SARS coronavirus two started circulating in, in our area, we've had coronavirus every year, the seasonal coronavirus which causes milder disease. Um, people can get it multiple times, different types of coronaviruses. And we don't yet know how, if you were exposed to that seasonal coronavirus some time ago, if that gives you any kind of protection to COVID. Now, there's an effort underway to develop a vaccine for COVID-19. Is a vaccine necessarily gonna be more effective than antibodies? A good vaccine should create the antibodies that you need to fight COVID going forward. So the goal of a COVID vaccine would be to essentially expose people or make their body think that they've been exposed, mount the defense response without them getting sick, and then the next time they're exposed, they're protected from it. So it's a safer way to prompt your body to make the antibodies than actually getting that, the disease. Yeah, that's okay. exactly right. And that's how we could safely get our population closer to herd immunity or where enough of us are immune and protected that we could slow the spread of the, vi of the virus as well. Now, do you advocate people getting tested for antibodies just to know whether they might have been exposed to it? At this point, I think the future of antibody testing is a little bit unclear. So a few months ago, um, there was discussion about immunity passports, for example, that maybe the sci-fi future of COVID is that people could get tested and if they have antibodies, they could live their lives differently than other people because they've been exposed, they're protected. We don't know enough yet at this point, I would say, to be able to interpret the antibody results with any real certainty about what that means for your protection. In terms of knowing if you've been exposed or not, I think a lot of people are curious and I think that it's it's fine to go out and get tested if you're curious, but I would really caution people against trying to change their behavior at this point on the basis of that test, because we don't know if you can be reinfected. Well, what's the current thinking on COVID testing? Are you Do you advocate people who are healthy and don't have any symptoms, do you advocate that they get tested? Um, the county health department is doing a, you know, community testing, is that of value? So I would say um, the best use of 
COVID testing to look for the virus itself, not just antibody, but to look for the virus or an acute infection is when someone has symptoms or when they've been exposed? Because then we know what to make of that, right? So say you were at a party two weeks ago and it turns out a bunch of people were infected with COVID at that party. Um, that's a reasonable scenario to get tested even if you have no symptoms, as if you think you were exposed. Again, as we talked about, you may still need to change your behavior even if you were negative. And so the outcome of that test may not change a lot. In the scenario where we're doing mass testing of people where they have no symptoms and no known exposure, that gets a little more subtle. I don't think, you know, as, as more tests become available, we should, we should test a lot, but we need to be cautious in our interpretation. In that scenario, someone could test negative when they are about to turn positive the next day because they're in that early phase of infection. Um, and so on an individual person-to-person -person level, if you're just doing random testing, I would still caution people about getting the results of that and using it to change their behavior a lot or to march forth into the world with less caution because they tested negative. But for the on a public health level, that could be valuable because as they go out and they're testing communities, you get a sense of where these pockets are. So we found five cases in this community that we would not have found otherwise. That's valuable information. But on a person-to-person -person level, the interpretation gets a little bit more nuanced and people still need to be cautious in their behaviors. Well, let me ask you a little bit more about the households, because that's kind of what you're focusing on in this study. If you if your household is a COVID household where you have someone sick with COVID, um, once the disease runs its course and infects or not your family members, are you done with the disease and you can go out and go to the restaurants and you can, you know, get back to life before COVID or not? I'd say not yet. Um, for the same reasons uh, we were discussing that we don't yet fully understand what protection from COVID means and what it looks like, if you could get it again. Um, and so we'll continue to follow these households because this phenomenon, again, of people getting sick two months later, still testing positive two months later is something we don't fully understand. But no, once COVID runs through your household, I think that you're still unfortunately in the same boat with the rest of us of social distancing and wearing masks and being cautious until we know more. So what's your advice for someone who does test, say a mom with um, young children test positive um, and she's got a household to still run? How, I mean, how does she do that and keep her family safe from her? I mean, what, what guidelines do you have for how people can live under the same roof some positive and some not. Yeah, it's really challenging and it'll vary house to house and with respect to what other kind of support they have in their house. If you're the only person taking care of those kids, you might be left with the options of trying to wear a mask. So wearing a mask would help protect you from other people. We know that that helps slow transmission, not 100%, but offers some protection. Wiping down of surfaces, frequent hand washing, things like that, if you can do it, and this is, again, the county health department will be working with folks to help them navigate this. Um, if you're able to do it, the recommendation would be that you isolate yourself from the rest of the family, use a separate bathroom and try to minimize the spread to other people. If, you're, if your household, if, if you've got the space to do that. If you've got the space and the support to do that. So I wanted to ask you about uh, herd immunity. Uh, I've seen people arguing that we should not worry about wearing masks. We should just let herd immunity take care of this virus. Would that work? I think that's an important question. And I can certainly understand the appeal of that kind of thinking after what has been a challenging four months for all of us in terms of turning our lives upside down for COVID. This thought of why don't we just let it run through our population and be done with it. And so we have enough immunity. And the reason we can't do that is because although we have not yet seen it in our community, we worry about our hospitals being overwhelmed. That's where it, what it really comes down to. We know that this virus easily spreads from person to person, and we know that it can cause very severe disease and death. So if we were to do nothing, many, many of us would be infected and our hospitals would not be ready for that. And that would mean that we would need ICU beds for people who would not be able to get them. There would be deaths that we could otherwise avoid. And we know that what we're doing right now wearing masks, social distancing, washing our hands has slowed the spread 
and has allowed our hospitals to be able to take care of the COVID patients that continue to pop up because the virus is still here. We're still seeing cases. We're slowly, slowly going towards herd immunity, but we cannot just let the virus run through because our health system can't handle it. Now, the term herd immunity, we just talked about how we don't really know whether the presence of antibodies indicates immunity or for how long or, you know, for how good. So even if the whole community was exposed to this, does that necessarily mean they would be protected from being exposed again? We can't say that at this point. We do believe that most people, but again, we we aren't 100% certain about this. We do believe that most people would have at least a short-term period where they would be protected from infection, but we certainly know that there are some viruses similar to COVID where people can get infected every year or every two years, for example. We don't know that yet with COVID. Well, thank you to Dr. Katie Anderson. She's an assistant professor of medicine and an infectious disease epidemiologist at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on HealthLink on Air, after the Army Reserve was mobilized to help during the pandemic, a nurse practitioner from Upstate shares her story. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Colonel Patricia Goodyear spent two months caring for patients with COVID-19 at Queens Central Hospital as part of the U.S. Army Reserves. She's a nurse practitioner at Upstate University Hospital, and now that she's returned to Syracuse, I'm talking with her about her experiences. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Patricia. Good morning, Amber. So how did you become part of the Army Reserves? Um, I joined the Army Reserves back when I was 23 in 1988. Um, most of my my family members had been in the military at some point, so it was always something I wanted to do. So can you tell us about the tours of duty you've done before this most recent activation? I was activated back in 2002 for um, uh, Enduring Freedom, um, Iraqi Freedom Campaign for about a year. Um, That was my only deployment. The other um, opportunities I've had have been mostly doing readiness activities in other communities in the United States. We do IRTs, which are called, um, which are innovative readiness activities, and they go into a community and provide care for the constituents for free. We usually bring uh, dentists and pharmacists and opticians and providers, and we've gone to Louisiana, Arkansas. I've also gone to Haiti after the hurricane. Um, back in 2008, or no, I'm sorry, 2000. So, and then this most recent one. So what was your reaction when you found out you would be going to Queens Central Hospital? How did that all come about? Um, I was um, not really given any information about where I was going. Um, I was simply informed that I was being mobilized um, for the campaign against COVID. Um, we were all brought to Utica to begin with, and then um, parts of our group were divided off into other places to form 85-man task force that they had set up, um, urban task force to deal with this um, so disease. So how, how much notice did they give you? you Two know. days. So you had two days notice to get ready to be mobilized and be gone. Yes, two days. When you heard that it was to to be part of the COVID um, response, were you afraid of being exposed to the virus? No, I I really wasn't because 
working in healthcare in an acute setting, you frequently are exposed to things that, um, you know, are contagious. So you use, you know, your PPE, your masks, your hand washing, your, you know, alcohol sanitizer, you use your methods to deal with that, to stay safe. And honestly, I thought it was an amazing chance to be able to help in a situation where you're watching on the news day after day, you know, a city within our state just suffering with this disease and needing healthcare providers. I also felt like for me, because I have five children, I didn't have to worry about bringing it home every night to my kids. So that was also a relief. So, um, yeah, I was, I, I wasn't, won't say I was excited because it is hard to leave home and leave your children, but I was, I was glad that I was able to help. So how did you prepare your kids for your absence? Um, my children have always known me to be in the military. Um, they are young. I've had them later in life. So my oldest is 12. My youngest is six. And so being a single mom, military has always been part of our lives. They, um, they know that I'm in the army and why I'm in the army. We talk about it. And as part of being in the military as a single parent, you have to have a care plan in place for your children. So I had already established that my children would go stay with my friend if I ever needed to leave um, for any reason. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Patricia Goodyear. She's a nurse practitioner at Upstate and a colonel in the U.S. Army Reserves. And we're talking about the two months she spent in Queens helping to care for patients with COVID-19. So talk to me about your job at Queens Central Hospital. Now, did they send you along with other Army colleagues to the same hospital? Yes, um, I was assigned into Task Force One as a uh, nurse practitioner. And when we arrived in New York, they this was just a dynamic, fluid operation. So they realized they didn't need our asset at um, the Javits Center. So they it took at least a couple of days to get the contract set up so that we could actually go into the local hospitals. So they sent initially just the providers to Queens and then and the nurses did go over to the Javits. And then once the Javits wound down and the numbers decreased, they brought the nurses over with us as well. So um, we weren't really given a lot of information other than we, were, we arrived, we came in, we met their staff, and there was a lot of um, information passing back and forth of what our skill sets were to know where they could best utilize us. Um, fortunately for me, I um, do have a acute care, critical care background. So they put me in the MICU, the medical ICU, which um, had some very severe needs at that time in the MICU um, due to the fact that uh, quite a few of their staff, provider and nurses um, contracted COVID. Uh, this was primarily because there was such an epidemic and there wasn't a knowledge of that epidemic in the beginning that if the patient didn't come in with symptoms of COVID, they, the staff didn't take the precautions because it wasn't known at that time how massive the epidemic was, the pandemic in Queens. So they exposed themselves without realizing it. And then the, several attendings were out, nurses were out. So when we arrived, um, one of the fortunate pieces is that they use Epic as their medical um, system and we use Epic. So that made my transition a lot easier because I knew how to use the charting system. 
So were you uh, providing hands-on care for patients with COVID-19 as a nurse practitioner? Yes, I was assigned um, to the team um, with an attending and a couple residents. And we worked 12 to 14 hours a day, six days a week. Um, and we rounded and, you know, provided, you know, interventions and care. And um, a lot of the interventions like proning require not just nursing staff, but provider staff as well. So um, we were involved throughout the whole day with the, with our patients. What What is proning? Proning um, is where the patient is actually placed on their stomach um, face down because um, uniquely with the lungs, you when you're laying on your back, the circulation and the aeration only occurs primarily on your anterior lung. But when you prone, you actually have more surface that gets aerated. Therefore, you get better perfusion. So um, proning has been used in the medical community for severe um, ARDS, you know, um, traumatic lung disease in the past. And it was one of a number of things we would use to try to help the patients be able to oxygenate better. Um, so what you would do is you'd have to use several staff and turn them onto their abdomen, make sure that their limbs are um, correctly aligned and that they have the, most of them were intubated. So you wanted to make sure you protected their airway so they didn't extubate as you're trying to turn them. I mean, it sounds easy to, like to put yourself on your stomach, but if you've ever encountered a patient in the ICU with feeding tubes and central lines and art lines and intubation tubes, it, it's a challenge to keep what, all the wires connect, you know, in place where you want them by doing, when you flip them on their stomach. Did you have patients that you saw um, recover from COVID-19 and go home? I wish I could say that I did. Um, no, not in my two months there. Um, I had uh, a few patients that I thought were going to do okay. Um, in particular, there was a patient that we had extubated who was very young, um, in his 30s. And after he was extubated, he seemed to be doing well, got transferred out of the ICU. Um, and when I went back into the records in Epic to look for a particular patient, a, a different patient, his name actually showed up on the group of names of past charts I was in. And it said discharge to morgue. And it just, it, I couldn't believe it because I, you know, you didn't hear about patients after they left your unit because there was such a large volume. Um, and when I looked at the record, um, basically, we knew he had a, a clot in his lung and we were treating it, but the medication we used to treat it, the blood thinner caused bleeding in his abdomen. So they had stopped the blood thinner. And then he had another very large clot to his lungs and, and um, expired. So well, that was quite a shock to me. And you said this gentleman was in his 30s. Correct. So I, I think people have an idea that this is a disease of the elderly, and, and that isn't, wasn't your experience, right? No, actually, um, it wasn't. It, most of the patients I treated were young. Wow. And... Um, I, it was it was very hard for me because a lot of um, I've worked in trauma before this and we don't normally lose patients. You don't have a large volume of deaths in the medical in in general in my practice in the past. So to 
have so many patients expire. It was, it's like caregiver fatigue almost like, you know, and then you're listening to the community out there at large, believing that this doesn't even exist. And yet you're watching day after day as people die from it, young people, um, people in their thirties and forties, not, yes, there were elderly people that came in, but a lot of times they were already uh, do not resuscitate because they came from like a nursing home. So we made them comfortable and they were expectant. And that was a little easier to understand. Well, as someone who has literally been on the front lines of this pandemic, what do you think society is doing right in its response? And, and what do we need to be doing that we're not doing? I think good hand washing, um, hand sanitizer, wearing a mask, and social distancing does a lot more than people give it credit for. I mean, we had 85 in my um, task force, and then there were other ta another task force nearby, and none of us zero converted and caught COVID. And we were involved in it daily for over two months. And the consistent thing that was universal amongst all of us was social distancing, wearing a mask, using good hand washing and hand sanitizer. I mean, um, and I think that it's, I think that it's sad that there's people out there that don't believe that that is effective or they feel that um, it somehow takes away from them to protect themselves and other people by doing that. Yeah. Well, I am appreciative of you sharing your experience. Thank you so much to nurse practitioner and Army Reserves Colonel Patricia Goodyear. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Michael Stokes was a Syracuse poet who sent us a poem about losing his sister to sickle cell disease. Michael lost his own battle with that disease last year at the young age of 28. He left his beautiful wife and daughter who gave us permission to publish this poem. He uses a traditional rhyming scheme in this poignant, powerful piece called The Pain in My Head. The pain in my head, mental static, the spiritual pain that hits my soul, feeling I never had it, the emotional pain, seeming like a drunken addict, the pain in my heart, time counts down, depression a killer that almost put me in the ground, can't trust anybody, not even me. That makes no sense, like how can that be? I'm lost in an empty place and I'm scared of the result. For once, I feel the torment isn't my fault, but then I think I should have made a different choice, but I'm still lost and so is my voice. I scream, I kick and scream some more. I feel like an abandoned child, nothing but closed doors. God, can you hear me? Feel my tears, feel my soul and my mental fears. Just give me a response. Give me my sister back. I'll take her place. Can we trade like that? I'm hurt and need help. I've reached a halt. Can you hit me with a decent lightning bolt? Give my heart a jump, a new start to feel, a new beginning with all the pain healed. Help me help the world. Let the anger release. God, all I want in the world is peace. During this time of mass quarantine and self-isolation, ornithologists and other careful observers know that birds are singing more and even more loudly. 
Here is an evocative tribute to our feathered friends from Welsh poet Gareth Culshaw, whose second collection of poetry, Shadows of Trafan, will be published this year. Here is Feathered Opera. Yesterday when it rained, he watched me walk down the snake-drawn road. Leaves let raindrops slide down them, and wet bombs landed on my shoulders. He blurted out a song that filled my ears. Its allegro, then adagio, tapped at my brain. I watched him with red apple chest bursting through his brown cape. He eyed my passing like a watchman in a tower. My feet carried on, taking my body to the next corner, the next bend. But he stayed there on the sycamore branch, sent an opera to walk with me for a while, as if he knew I was walking alone. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. If you missed any of today's show, or for other consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org, or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.